Welcome to the latest episode of the Varying Viewpoints podcast series, sponsored by the Samuel D. Witt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity, and Justice at Rutgers University. I'll be your host today. My name is Leslie Rivas, and I am a John Smart Summer Scholar. We will be discussing the use of standardized testing in college admissions, and I am very excited to be here with our invited guest, Dr. Joseph Suarez. Dr. Suarez is a professor of sociology at Wake Forest University and author of SAT Wars, The Case for Test Optional Admissions. Welcome, Dr. Suarez. It is a pleasure having you with us today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, it's a pleasure being with you today. I graduated from Rutgers Newark in 1981, so there is the uh, that Rutgers connection. It was, even then, I think, diversity university in that it was mostly Black and, and Puerto Rican and Latinx students with uh, fair number of white working class students as well. Um, I went from there to Harvard for grad school, um, had a marvelous time, and uh, my dissertation won a prize. I left Harvard for a uh, position at Yale University where I was an assistant and then promoted to associate associate professor status, and then left Yale for uh, Wake Forest University in, in 2003 where I've been ever since. I'm currently the chair of my department, and I have four books on higher education. The SAT Wars is the third one. Uh, uh, it does provide case studies on uh, the SAT and the ACT and, and looks at all the issues of, of uh, test validity and, and test bias. The fourth book is called The Scandal of Standardized Tests, which came out um, uh, in March of 2020, uh, the same time the pandemic hit. So that was an unfortunate coincidence. Um, and the two previous books before that, one was on um, higher education in the UK, and the other one was on higher education in the United States, uh, it, and it was called The Power of Privilege. Both of those were published by Stanford University Press, and both of my uh, SAT, ACT books uh, have been published by um, Teachers Press, uh, Columbia University Press. So that's probably enough. That's really great. Thank you so much. I, I wanted to start off by providing some context for today's topic. Uh, as we know, the COVID-19 pandemic forced institutions of higher education to rethink the standardized exam component of their admissions processes. Many institutions adopted test optional policies giving students the ability to choose whether or not to submit scores as part of their application. Other schools chose to be test blind and did not collect scores at all. Now, two years into the pandemic, many of the safety precautions and regulations have been lifted, yet institutions have continued to be flexible with the testing requirement. Hence, there exists a unique opportunity for educational leaders to critically examine the inequities in college admissions and promote meaningful change. So I wanted to ask as my first question, uh, Dr. Suarez, is if you can speak to the origins of standardized testing in college admissions, as well as some of the literature that exists on standardized assessment with regard to its effectiveness. Uh, the introduction of standardized tests for college admissions in the United States has two uh, distinct stories to it, um, because the private sector embraced it in the 1920s, and the public sector didn't really come around until the 1960s, um, when the University of California uh, signed on board. Um, but 
before the University of California signed on, the public sector in the United States, you got into higher education in Michigan or California or, or New Jersey by graduating from a certified high school in the state. Um, it was called high school certification. As long as you graduated from a school and you had completed the academic requirements for entry to the university, um, you were automatically eligible to, to be admitted and the rest of it was a, a process of you, you know, sorting out uh, um, which, if in California, which campus you would be going to and where you could afford to live and all that kind of stuff. Um, the vast majority of Americans historically who've gone to higher education have done it just simply by finishing high school. Um, standardized tests were introduced first in the private sector in the 1920s for all of the wrong reasons. Uh, this is not controversial among historians or um, uh, sociologists, uh, but the original motivation for uh, these tests in the 1920s um, was anti-Semitic. Uh, that is, these tests were supposed to be IQ tests, which would weigh disproportionately against Jewish young men uh, uh, and uh, keep the Ivy League uh, pure for white Anglo-Saxon Protestant uh, males. Um, the designer of the test was a man named Carl Brigham. He was a psychologist at Princeton University. He was a famous eugenicist. Um, you have to think back to you know uh, the 1920s in the United States and and eugenics, uh, which was embraced as a science then. 1920s, uh, the notion that uh, intelligence was passed along in the bloodline uh, and that there were superior and inferior groups was not only embraced by scientists but it was also embraced by law. We had the full weight of um, separate and unequal, uh, uh, you know, racial uh, apartheid across the United States. Um, uh, blacks and whites were not in the same schools, in the same neighborhoods. Uh, um, uh, Latinx Americans were not in the same schools or neighborhoods as, as white Americans. Um, uh, it, we were a highly racialized society, and uh, the Ivy League was... Uh, looking for a test that would screen out Jewish boys because Columbia University had gone over a period of about six years from having a trickle of Jewish boys in their entering class to having 40% of, the of their undergraduates by 1926 were um, generation, first generation Jewish immigrant youths from the greater New York area. Now, the, the Ivy League was blatantly anti-Semitic, uh, and uh, they looked to the data available from the US military from the First World War when they studied um, IQ among GIs. Uh, Carl Brigham drew from this data, published a book called A Study in American Intelligence in 1923 that proposed that there were four racial intelligence groups in the United States, the Nordic, the Alpine, the Mediterranean, and quote, the Negro, um, who were rock bottom. And what we needed, according to the eugenesis, you know, eugenics is the notion that you selectively pick for the best DNA, you pick for the best bloodlines, and you support and nurture that. And this enables the best and the brightest to always be the leaders and the rulers of our um, society. So they developed a test that they thought would uh, put Negroes, quote, Negroes at the bottom, Mediterranean uh, races for them included Jews and Italians um, and Greeks. 
The Alpine category for them included what um, we would think of as the as uh, you know Austria and, and Germany and and um, um, even some of France and the Nordic, which you know it was odd that they picked that name. By Nordic, they really were referencing um, uh, Britain. They they were talking about you know the British um, uh, bloodline in the United States. Um, so they developed this fake IQ test, which was the SAT. They introduced it in the 1920s, um, and it took them three years to figure out that it didn't actually work. Um, that is, it didn't keep out Jewish boys, and it um, also, they figured out, didn't predict how well you would do in, in college at Yale or Harvard or Princeton. But at that point, they were too invested in it, so they couldn't back off of it because they liked the bragging rights of saying, that they were selecting people for a test that was like the gold standard and not just embracing anyone who graduates from high school anywhere in the United States. So they wouldn't back off of it. Um, and they, they kept uh, using the test for bragging rights. Um, and then they introduced other ways to discriminate against Jews. Again, this is in, documented in multiple books it's in my second book, The Power of Privilege. It's in a book by Dan Oren called Joining the Club, which is a history of Jews at Yale. It's in a book by Jerome Carabell um, called The Gatekeepers. Um, uh, there are multiple uh, historical works that, that discuss this process. So I know I've gone on at some length, but my point is standardized tests were introduced as an IQ, a fake, I'm calling it a pseudo IQ test that was supposed to be a way of doing social Darwinism for selecting for the best and the brightest. Um, and it was embraced by the private sector in the 1920s, even though it didn't work for them. So uh, the public sector didn't swing around to it until for all of the wrong reasons in the 1960s, when the University of California and other public institutions were envious of the prestige of places like Harvard, Yale and Princeton and the Ivy League. So they wanted to show that their students were just as good as the students going to those other places. So um, Clark Kerr, who was the chancellor of the University of California, introduced it in 1968, overriding the recommendations of his own in internal um, uh, admissions uh, researchers who had demonstrated time and time again that uh, the SAT did not provide any additional predictive value um, to the admissions process and, and was uh, a, a metric that was biased. Um, but the University of California embraced it in 1968 so it could claim that it was competing against Harvard. And then it kept it until um, it, it, the University of California today is test blind. I mean, we'll come to this in greater detail later. But test blinds means that they are so persuaded of the uselessness of the test and the social biases that it transmits that they refuse to even accept test scores. You can't send them your test score. They don't wanna look at numbers. They wanna admit people only on the basis of what has always been the most reliable predictor of academic performance in college, which is grades in academic subjects in high school. Um, end of story. So, you know, so the University of California now has come full circle. It went from leading the embrace of standardized testing in the 1960s that then everybody else joined in on to today being the the only state system in the country that refuses to even look at test scores you know test test optional uh, was introduced in the united states quite some time ago by 
um, Bowdoin and Bates colleges uh, in Maine, um, they introduced test optional because they were persuaded by Howard Gardner, who is still at Harvard, um, but he's not the only person who makes this case, but Howard Gardner and others like uh, Robert Sternberg have pointed out that um, the SAT is only addressing one very narrow sense of what is supposed to be intelligence, that there's, it, it is not some kind of a generalized IQ test that captures how robust you will be as an actor, regardless of what type of occupation you pursue later on in life. Um, I mean, they just pointed out that, that the SAT is a very narrow um, uh, 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 metric, uh, that it, uh, it doesn't capture uh, practical intelligence, uh, wisdom, uh, grit, your, your perseverance, uh, your creativity, your leadership, your capacity to cooperate with other people, lots of other things that are aspects of intelligence. So Howard Gardner and Robert Sternberg were both advocates of this notion that there were at least five different types of intelligence that was important. Um, and uh, because of that, Bates and Bowden stepped back from um, requiring test scores and saying, you know, we're, 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 we're treating this as optional. If you think this is important information about yourself, go ahead and send us a test score and, and we'll look at it. But we're trying to look, do holistic college admissions we're looking at all of these different things. So whether you give us a test score or not is just as optional as to whether or not, you know, you would send us a portfolio on your extracurricular activities or your community engagement or your artistry or any number. It's just one signal among many different ones. Um, and then test optional became stronger and stronger over the decades um, as other institutions realized that the SAT and the ACT were both predictively quite weak um, and socially biased. Um, and uh, the predictive weakness of these tests um, is something that even the test industry, by which I mean, you know, the people who own the SAT and the people who own the ACT, they have never claimed in any of their technical literature that their test does a better job of predicting performance in college whether we think of performance in college as grades or graduating, they've never claimed that their test score does a better job than high school grades. They always just claimed that if you added it to high school grades, you would get a, a higher statistical prediction of um, someone's performance. And in many cases, that's true. But the point is that um, high school grades are the strongest single predictor of how well you will do in college, and they transmit far, far fewer social uh, inequities than standardized tests do, um, by which I mean the gap between rich and poor students, between black and white students, male and female students in high school grades is much narrower than the gap between whites and blacks and males and females for standardized tests. So the test optional movement was saying, we're not requiring you to send us a test score. We realize the test score um, is something that's important to some of you, but it's not really that good of a predictor for us. So we're not viewing it as essential information. Um, and uh, you, know, you can send us all of the other things that you think are important um, about 
the curriculum you've taken and the activities that you've been engaged in, and we will admit you on the on the basis of that. Now, test optional was winning the the struggle, by the way, before the pandemic hit, in that uh, about twelve hundred institutions of higher education in the United States, which was around. 35% of all four-year degree-granting institutions in the United States were already test-optional before the pandemic hit. When the pandemic hit, it brought along an additional 600, um, many of, of whom are the big names like um, you know Harvard and, and Yale um, uh, and uh, Johns Hopkins and, and others, but um, places like the University of Chicago, um, uh, George Washington uh, uh, University uh, uh, in D.C., uh, Wake Forest, uh, Brandeis, NYU, um, uh, m- most of the top liberal arts colleges in the United States um, were all test optional before the pandemic hit. Um, and then the pandemic uh, uh, sort of put on the table the reality that, that uh, you know, testing centers across the country were shut down. People were not able to take the test, even when they wanted to take the test. Um, and uh, places like Harvard decided that this was an unnecessary burden and they would um, go ahead and do admissions without requiring test scores. And as a result, uh, all of these places have gotten more social or racial and economic diversity than they've ever had before, um, which is part of the reason why uh, uh, virtually all of them are continuing with test optional policies we're going test-free, like uh, um, Caltech uh, in Pasadena in California is is uh, test-free, um, along with uh, the you know the University of California system and the Cal State system. Um, there are about seventy-seven institutions in the United States right now that are test-free that they don't even want to look at your score. Um, but then there are the majority of institutions uh, continue to be test-optional, um, and. Uh, yeah, the the uh, the additional big ones like Harvard came on board because of the pandemic, but I think that that even they are sort of waking up, smelling the coffee, and realizing that this test has been an impediment to uh, diversity in in higher education, uh, especially in uh, these highly rejective institutions. I hesitate to call them selective because selectivity implies in some way that they're getting, you know, the best of the best of the best. And that's not actually what's going on Uh, at a place like Harvard. The vast majority of people who apply to Harvard um, are perfectly capable of doing excellent academic work at Harvard. Um, I know that researchers know that uh, uh, Fitzsimmons, the admissions dean with whom I've shared panels and meals knows that. so when you've got uh, like a three or a four or five percent admit rate, what that really is saying is that you know you've won the beauty contest, you've got a huge number of people who want to come to you, and you are really good at rejecting, you know, ninety-five percent of the people who apply. But that that doesn't mean that the folks that you've selected are somehow, you know, the best of the best of the best with these you know halos from. Um, you know, Einstein in, in heaven hovering over their heads and, and designating them as the ones who are going to be the winners henceforward the rest of their lives. It's just, you know, you can be a highly rejective institution if you've got a lot more people applying than you've got spaces for them to, to go in. And a place like Harvard does not expand. It just, uh, the pool expands, but the number of seats stays the same. Yeah, thank you for sharing. You make really excellent points. And 
I appreciate you sharing the historical context and addressing some of the misconceptions that exist around what these scores predict and they determine about a student's success in college. And I know you mentioned this briefly, but I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate your thoughts on some of the pushback that exists against removing testing from admissions criteria, which stems from this concern that institutions will admit students who are not college ready, or in other words, not prepared for the rigor of college. What are your thoughts on these concerns? Um, the, the college readiness thing uh, is um, a, a little bit of, of, of a bogeyman, um, a little bit of a myth. Um, most people who start college and fail to finish, which is a huge problem in the United States, we've got a gigantic, uh, if you will, dropout rate from higher education because um, easily 45% of the people who start a four-year college degree um, never uh, achieve one. But the vast majority of, of the people who are not crossing the finish line are doing that due to economic problems, um, not academic ones. Um, uh, preparation for college, uh, the, there's been a lot of, of studies of, of you know, what uh, kind of a high school GPA do you need in order to be successful in college? Well, I think one of the more rigorous ones um, was done uh, by people looking at uh, um, liberal arts colleges in the United States, like Swarthmore and, and Bowdoin, and, and, um, and seeing that um, anyone graduating from high school with a, with a GPA of 3.25 or higher is going to do extremely well at any of those kinds of very demanding, if you will, rigorous um, you know, liberal arts um, institutions. And uh, that's an awful lot of people. Now, that, that's not to say the people with lower GPAs averages than 3.25 are not also um, capable of crossing the finish line. The best study of that um, was uh, uh, done by a, a, a group of researchers. Uh, um, uh, the results were published by Princeton University Press called Crossing the Finishing Line. Uh, and it uh, looks at uh, um, what... Uh, um, you know, grades and, uh, you know, background uh, um, best predicts people pre graduating from public universities in the United States. And again, they, they found, you know, if you did well in academic subjects in, in high school, you're going to do very well uh, in college. They found that standardized tests like the SAT and the ACT did not predict at all um, whether or not you're going to cross the finish line. Um, so I think uh, I'm, I'm more concerned with expanding access than I am in building, uh, you know, stronger gates. Um, I, I don't think that the crises in higher education in the United States is mostly one of students who are unable, incapable of doing the work um, as, as much as um, institutions that are not able to provide um, the economic and possibly also the academic mentoring um, support infrastructure um, to enable these people to succeed. I, I'd be more concerned about, um, you know, expanding Pell Grant, uh, the size of Pell Grants, and, and uh, um, also making higher education more affordable. It, uh, the, the cost of higher education, even in the public sector, has just skyrocketed, um, and, and we should be bringing that down uh, instead of, of pushing it up. But I, I'm, just, I'm just saying that my biggest concern about higher education in the United States is not um, whether or not uh, 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 youths are able uh, to do the work. My biggest concern is 
um, supporting the youths who deserve a higher education um, to be able to cross the finish line. And I appreciated you saying that, especially because I know you mentioned earlier that uh, the schools that have employed test optional and test blind policies have actually seen um, greater diversity in their schools and um, thus far have not seen any any decline to their prestige or any decline in their in the success of their students, which is really interesting. And I think your thoughts kind of lead into this next question, but based on your research and knowledge, what measures uh, could be used to determine a student's college readiness in consideration of the systemic and structural barriers that exist for students with marginalized identities? The most reliable metric, the most reliable measure, the best predictor of whether or not someone's going to do well in college is if they are able to handle um, a- academic subjects in high school. And by that, I mean, you know, math, chemistry, uh, um, uh, you know, hi- history, um, politics, uh, people who are, who are doing those classes and doing well in those classes. Um, and by well, um, I, I would mean, you know, B's and A's uh, for the most part. Um, they're, they're going to be doing extremely well um, in, in college. Uh, and uh, on the part of the problem about um, when you say marginalized ident- identities, I'm not sure if, if by that we're talking about, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, sexual uh, identities or um, we're talking about uh, uh, r- racial identities. Um, but I think that we certainly would do better for all of our students if there was more transparency about uh, the, the things you need to do in high school in order to go into higher education. Um, if there's more transparency and less uh, this sort of scary uh, um, confusion about, uh, you know, oh, you, you've got to be able to walk on water and, and solve poverty problems and world hunger and, and uh, you know, you've got to be a star athlete or, or a star um, um, a theatrical performer. I, I think we just need to sort of t- tone down the craziness about uh, what one needs in order to have a successful experience in higher education. Um, and uh, high schools, all high schools, could do a much better job of pro- providing um, you know, clear, transparent pathways, saying, you know, all right, here you do these things, you sort of you know, accomplish the following five, six, seven, eight steps, and you're going to have available to you the options of going to, to these various institutions. Um, I think that if you look at higher education overall um, in the United States of four-year degree-granting institutions, that over half of them are admitting um, more than half of the people who apply to them, uh, that the big uh, panic about um, you know, oh, am I really competitive? Um, is something that factors into uh, a perhaps at best twenty um, percent of the institutions of higher education in the United States, and those institutions are not always the ones that are going to best serve marginalized uh, youths, 
um, youth from non uh, uh, upper middle class, professional class, college educated parent um, households. There are lots of institutions in the United States that do a marvelous job at um, what we refer to as uh, social mobility um, in enabling youth from um, families without college educated parents and, and low um, income um, to uh, get a good education without going into debt and to move on to, to earn a very solid middle-class um, uh, incomes. And uh, I think if people would do a bit of a web search, there are multiple resources on this, including there's one at Georgetown University that, that Anthony um, Carnavali uh, and his Center on, on Youth Education and Employment provides um, statistics through that. There's a social mobility um, index uh, that uh, you can find on the web that ranks all colleges in the United States and works with actual real tax data to show you how well people do um, 10, 20, 30 years down the road. Uh, and some of the very best um, institutions for upward mobility are, of course, the best institutions for upward mobility in the United States are public institutions. Um, I think in, in California, um, like Cal State uh, Dominguez, uh, um, uh, Cal State Irvine, Cal State um, LA, um, they are among the top institutions for um, providing for upward mobility um, for uh, um, you know, marginalized youth uh, in the United States. And, and high schools should be providing information about that instead of providing the kind of U.S. News and World Report BS about uh, you know, how prestigious a place is and how it's ranked by them. The U.S. News and World Report rankings are absolutely worthless. They tell you uh, the resources available to an institution. They tell you how wealthy an institution is, and they tell you um, how uh, prestigious an institution is in the eyes of other academics, but it doesn't tell you how well an institution is going to add and to and enhance the value that you need in your life, the educational value, the cognitive and personal skills that you need in order to be able to move forward. Um, and, uh, you know, high schools would be better served to uh, acquaint students with social mobility indexes and to steer them away from thinking about college applications as sort of a U.S. News and World Report uh, competition. Um, that's just the, the wrong way of going about it. And um, it just feeds into the, the whole hierarchy of, of um, only some places being really good and valuable, which is just wrong. I mean, I went, again, I mean, I went to Rutgers, Newark. I got an excellent education. When I applied to grad schools, I applied to five places. I got admitted to every single one. Um, yeah, I went to Harvard, but I went there because of the obvious reason that they put more resources on the table than anybody else. So it's like, yeah, they bought me. But I also then used that um, opportunity to move forward with my own career um, in ways that uh, continue to this day to undermine the hierarchy that uh, Harvard represents. So, you know, I don't feel that I got the worst part of the bargain. Thank you for sharing. I think something that really stood out to me from what you're saying is this need to really invest in, in our public schools because our, our public high schools don't have the same resource allocations, don't have the same capacities. And right now there's teacher shortages and so many issues, and it just highlights how important our high schools are in promoting college 
college enrollment and college success. And I know I know you're uh, in higher education, but I was wondering if you had thoughts on whether the removal of the ACT and the SAT requirement has implications for K through 12 education, either in the classroom or in the use of high stakes assessments, such as their state mandated exams. Um, yes, absolutely. There are 22 states in the United States that are using the ACT or the SAT as a way of assessing what's going on in their high schools, which is just so wrong on every possible level. Those tests are not designed as tests, uh, as curriculum tests. A curriculum test is a test that says, you know, all right, what have you, what have you learned over the course of the semester or the year about this subject? But the ACT and the, and, and the SAT are not subject tests. I mean, they've, they've got the, the college board people who own the, the SAT. They do have subject tests that they are successful in selling to American schools. They're, they're AP advanced placement tests, and they have a big market for them. They are a big moneymaker for them. Um, and this is a spinoff from um, the, you know, the SAT and the ACT. But the weight of the tests in high schools is it uh, reinforces this incorrect notion that these standardized tests are telling you who's smart and who isn't. So it's labeling winners and, and losers. And in both instances, you know, the youth who's gotten a low score or a high score uh, is wrong, mistaken, to think that this is either a stigma or something to brag about because those scores do not predict how well you're going to do in college. So the, there's this whole mentality, collective misunderstanding of what intelligence is that is perpetrated by the standardized test industry. Um, and then I see on the ground, I mean, I have a daughter in, in high school. My, my son went through not so long ago. He's a senior right now at Georgetown. And I saw what, what they went through in that at both, uh, for both of them, um, these institutions, these public high schools, they set aside entire days for test prep. They set aside entire days for taking, you know, multiple uh, early versions of the SAT before you actually take, you know, the, the real one. Um, and they emphasize test prep and they're constantly sharing information about SAT boot camps, they call them, and, and uh, um, these people who are um, SAT tutors. So it distorts, it distracts our youth from actually focusing on mastering real intellectual materials, you know, like calculus or statistics um, or um, uh, for that matter, you know, American history, instead of mastering those actual things, foreign languages, for example, how many high school students in the United States actually end up being able to converse in the language that they've just spent however many years is required by their local high school uh, studying. It's like we don't spend enough time on the actual intellectual work because the tests are a distraction and the tests are this fake, um, you know, metric of, of, of IQ, of, of saying, you know, you're bright or, or, or you're not bright. So there's this whole trickle-down uh, effect um, uh, in the way it impacts the curriculum, uh, the, the lives of, of students, and the mindset of, of educators and of the students in, in our K through 12 system that uh, teaching for these exams is something that's very important. 
Now I'm going to I'm going to put another exam on the table, and I assume that you've probably run a, uh, across this before. But there's this thing called PISA, which is um, uh, an international uh, performance uh, assessment uh, test, and PISA, um, which is administered through uh, the um, mostly the EU and the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, that has um, Japan and and um, some Asian countries in it, as well as um, most of, of West and, and, and Central Europe. Um, those exams look at uh, competence uh, literacy in particular fields. Science is one of them, um, language is another. Um, and one of the nations that always comes out near the top is Finland. And what I love about Finnish education is in, in Finland, there's no tracking in schools. Schools meet, by American standards, uh, only about half, of, half the day. Um, you're, you're not um, eating meals in school. You're not doing um, you know, sports in school. You're just working together with, with other students on a common curriculum. Um, and there are no standardized tests that anyone takes in Finland as part of their schooling experience. Yet, when they're given a standardized test on science and math, uh, they outperform the United States by a huge extent. Um, so I think the lesson there is that uh, less is more. We, we should be less obsessed with all of these uh, uh, standardized test uh, results, the uh, assessment tests in our schools. We should spend more time on education. We shouldn't track people into separate uh, areas. We should have everybody mixed ability classes, if you want to think of them in those terms. Would you keep everybody together and you give them the time to actually learn subjects? Um, and uh, I think th that would be a huge improvement to the mental health and, and cognitive abilities of America's young people um, uh, in, instead of this sort of race to, to nowhere that we seem to be um, sort of panicking everybody into. I completely agree with with your thoughts. There's so much room for, uh, there's so much opportunity in in our classrooms uh, if teachers didn't have to teach to the test. And um, I think you highlighted a really great example with the education system in Finland, which I have seen um, videos of and read on, and which is remarkable uh, there. And I wanted to end on a final question. And that is if you had any final recommendations or considerations for education leaders currently deciding on the future of college admissions criteria. Uh, well, I mean, I would recommend to everybody that we just drop uh, that, that we're all test free. I mean, I think that the, the, the test is just a complete distraction. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. It, it, it consumes way too much of our, of our money. It consumes way too much of our time and our mental energies. Um, and it's this fake uh, uh, cloud, it's this thing hovering over all of us, over all of higher education, that reinforces the notion um, that, uh, you know, Black youth and Latinx youth are, are not as uh, college-ready um, or, or um, capable, and that women are not as, as college-ready. I mean, women, on the, these standardized tests, women as a group always score lower than men. And, uh, you know, are women less intelligent than men? Do women do poorer in high school or in college and in, in classroom grades? No, actually, if anything, there's a gender reversal. That is, if you're looking at purely grades, women are doing better in high school and better in college. Men do better on these standardized tests. 
Now, that's not a fluke. I could walk you through it. It would take a long time. But these tests have biases built into them. And I highly recommend uh, that uh, people who can get their hands on my SAT Wars book, that you read the sixth chapter written by Jay Rosner that goes into the logic of question selection, because a question ends up on one of these exams by being a question that reinforces the bell curve distribution of scores from last year's test. And that question is selected so that if, um, for example, if women were doing better than men on the math part of the SAT, then the bell curve would be completely thrown off, scores would be higher, and women would be outperforming men on the SAT. So what happens, women actually perform better than men on many math questions, but the questions that the women perform better on are excluded from the administration of the test in the, in the future years um, for counting for the actual test score. These questions appear in what's referred to as the experimental section of the test. So I'm, I'm saying not only are they predictively weak, but they are, they are designed socially to replicate a social Darwinist outcome that says that, that women are not as bright as men and blacks and Latinx youths are not as bright as white youths. And that's built into the test. Again, this is in chapter six of the SAT Wars book. The test itself is biased. So the first thing everybody in higher education needs to do is stop, stop accepting test scores. Just tell everybody, you know, if you're going to waste your time and your money on this test, that's your problem because we're not, we're not even going to open the envelope if you send it to us. We're not looking at scores. We're not accepting scores. We're done with these scores. So that would be step number one. Step number two would be that everybody should have something like, I'm, I'm very much like the state of California, and that the state of California has an overall plan that provides for the opportunity for everyone who finishes high school to go to some, some type of higher education institution in the state of California. You're getting people who are graduating in say the, the top 10% of their class, this is also used in the state of Texas, those people are automatically admitted to the University of California. And then the admissions process is, is sorting out whether you're going to be going to Merced or Riverside or, 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 um, you know, uh, or Berkeley or, or UCLA. Um, then the next chunk of people, which is about another uh, of 20%, those people are all automatically admissible to the Cal State system. So then, you know, you've got the top 10% going to the university, the next 20% going to the Cal State system. And then everybody after that is automatically admissible to the, to the community college system in the state of California. And the beauty of the community college system in California is that as long as you do, and my, I have a niece who did this, um, going to community college uh, in um, uh, San Jose, um, and then uh, going to uh, UCLA, as long as you do the courses that the University of California wants you to do in community college, you are transferred into the University of California system. So the University of California system, the university has the highest percentage of transfer students out of community colleges into the four-year institutions of any state in the United States. So I, I, would, I would want educational leaders in the United States to say, no more useless 
predictively weak and socially biased standardized tests. We're going to focus on what, what you're accomplishing in your high school career and as a person. We're going to practice holistic admissions. And we're going to have a place for everyone. There's a place for everyone who wants to go into higher education. There's a place for you. And I would want you know, transparency so that everyone understood where they were headed and what their opportunities, what their options um, were. Um, and the, the private sector, uh, which again is um, you know, at best a quarter of higher education in the United States, the private sector has got to also discontinue using these standardized tests. And it's got to be honest with people about how they pick a class, because it's not an accident that uh, places like Wake Forest have more students from the top 1% of the income pyramid in the United States than we've got from the bottom 60% of the income pyramid in the United States. If we want to say to the, the world, you know, we are a very expensive private country club and we are going to select a certain percentage of our students among those who are able to do the work and look interesting, we are selecting them based on their ability to pay full fees. We should be honest about that. And we should say, you know, Wake Forest has got the scholarship funds to support. Um, I, I think in truth right now, it's, it's, it's not more than about 15% of our students, but I would like it to, to be substantially higher. But you should be upfront about saying, yes, we're trying to select a rounded class, a group of people who will be interesting and bring diversity. But the reality is, as long as we're charging $70,000 a year, some 60% of our students are going to be coming from families who can slap down a check for the full fees. And we, we should not pretend that what we're doing is selecting the best and the brightest. We're selecting the best with the biggest bank accounts as part of what we're honestly doing. And I think we, could, we should have the integrity to say so. Um, so I, I would want honesty from the private sector, everybody to, to drop discontinued standardized tests and for the public sector to be like the California model where there's a place for everyone based on um, how uh, you did in your high school. Yes, that was a really great point to wrap up on. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing all of your knowledge and insights with us, Dr. Suarez. It was a pleasure getting to know you. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we close out? I mean, I know that it, it's a lot of work to figure out uh, where you're gonna go when you're in high school and you're, you're thinking about college, um, but I, I would encourage everybody to, to not be panicked by it, to not, don't buy into the hype, don't be scared, um, and to, to do your research because they, uh, you know, the University of Maryland, uh, Baltimore County, um, may be the perfect place for you in the world. And you shouldn't be thinking about, you know, Yale um, or Harvard or Stanford. Uh, those, those places are, are not going to help, help you. They're, they're just going to, you know, give you nightmares. Um, people have got to figure out, you know, where, what, what's a good fit for me and, and where am I going to benefit the most? Um, and, uh, you know, it just takes a, a, little, a little bit of work. I think most high school uh, youths in the United States are capable of, of doing Google searches. And if they'll just do a few, they can come up with a better list. And no one, no one should ever buy U.S. News and World Report. Um, and, and no one should ever reference that. And, and everybody should stop taking tests. <laughs> so anyway, that's, that's uh, my, my parting thoughts. Yes, that's, that's good advice for, for the youth who 
who will hopefully uh, choose the best college for them, uh, regardless of test scores. And hopefully they don't have to submit test scores. Uh, but thank you so, so much again. And this wraps up this episode of Varying Viewpoints. Thank you so much for listening and make sure to come back for the next episode.